Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. There's a saying, Danny Moses, when the cat's away, the mice will be. You heard that saying, when the cat's away, the mice shall play. Is that true? It's not time to make a change. Cat Stevens? That's All right, go pretty ahead. good. All right, actually. go ahead. Well, no, Dan Nathan is away. As we're doing this, he's on the campus of Georgetown University. He's taking his oldest daughter to school. I think that's beautiful. It's a good school, I heard. You like that place. Georgetown University is typically ranked anywhere from 18 to 22, depending on what publication you buy whether it's U.S. News and World Report, Forbes, Fortune, Wall Street Journal, any of those things, if they had a larger endowment, and perhaps if the On The Tape podcast becomes something, I can help them with that. You've helped them. You've put a lot of kids through there. I think you've done your part. I've, on the tuition front. Yeah. But, you know, what they – so they lack there. They lack in the library category. And they're weak in the sciences, but working on it. But it's a wonderful school. I would submit, outside of a few schools, it's the best school in the country. But that's not what we're to talk about. Our conversation is the cat is away. The cat comes in the form of Dan Nathan. So as I look at his empty chair, I'm staring at two $50 bills. By the way, on the $50 bill for you (laughs) playing our home game is Ulysses S. Grant. Is that true? That is true. You're right. Now, why is that there, Dan? I didn't put it there. Last show, I made a bet to Dan that by the time we record this today, the markets will be down for the month of August. And that was wrong. Wrong. That was wrong. I'm going to rehash it for next week, but he's not here to collect. The one time he takes money from me, the one time he's not here to collect. You know, it, it, it stand, but you see what's going to happen is, yeah. by definition, you have to double that. And he's going to wind up losing twice. He should have won, and he's going to wind up losing twice as much. So as I mentioned, when the cat's away, the mice shall play. It made me think. So this is how my mind works. I think of mice. I think of John Steinbeck. I think of Steinbeck's classic of mice and men. Which was released in the late 1930s. Where's the it, rabbit, George? Look, it's just, you are. See, that I, I is so it. good. Yeah. We didn't even script this. Go ahead. But my point is, this was written in the late 1930s by John Steinbeck. It's a wonderful piece, which everybody should read or should reread. But it's really, it's portraying sort of early depressionary era stuff. Now, before you start adding my ass on Twitter, I'm not suggesting 
were on the verge of a depression. But if you go back in history, by the way, Danny, and look at some of the things that were happening leading up to and things leading up to now, eerily similar. Before we get started, this is the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami. Today I'm joined just by the devishly handsome Danny Moses. Dan Nathan, as I mentioned, in Parts Unknown, although we know where he is. In a few minutes, we're going to have a conversation with the Pod Save the Queen or Pod Save America or Pod Save Somebody. Save Somebody. Yeah, he's saving the world. Yeah. Save the world. That's their two. They have that also. Pod save the world. Yep. I by the way, I'm just messing around. The guy's a genius. Tommy Vitor is going to join us on the tape. That's going to be a great conversation. As I mentioned, Dan's away. Oh, and oh, by the way, for those that care, on Monday, we're dropping a special podcast with Peter Bookvar of the Book Report. We're going to talk markets. We're going to talk all things leading up to Jackson Hole. He's going to have a conversation with Doug Sifu. So that's coming as well. So much to talk about, but I started Of Mice and Men, which is my sense, the title of this podcast. Am I making any sense whatsoever? Are you seeing similarities, hauntingly familiar things from the textbook in the 20s, 30s to what we're seeing right now? Other than looking to find the rabbit, George, to mm. see where to pull it out of a hat, mm-hmm. right? Ah. ah, you like what I did there. So I don't know if it's similar or not, but like I said before, this state of the markets is a lot of the last 50, 60 years, 70 years. It has a little piece of everything. So to answer your question, I don't know what year I would say we were in the 20s at this point. We've already been through one major dip. We know what happened in the 20s, and then we had a nice rally, and then it sold yes. back off again, right? So if that's what you're insinuating, do I think that that can happen? Yes. I think that can happen. The SEC, which I'm going to write about later, was oh, formed that. after that, correct? All right, so hold but, on a second. Go ahead. And by the way, we're going to have a rot by Danny Moses. I'm not asking you to insert that. I'm just doing that now organically. Please yep. continue, Danny. No, so listen, there's, I, I don't know what the simulators are because I wasn't around than you were. Nor was I. Okay. Nor was I. Yeah. Don't be a wise guy. I wasn't yeah. around. I know people make fun of my age. I'm old, but I'm not that old. But I will say... Again, the one thing that people owe to themselves right now is to do bottom-up work, and none of that is happening right now. At least none of it is paying off, and that will pay off over time. So the crowd moves in various directions. Everybody moves together. I like to think against the crowd, right? I like to use behavioral finance. So if you were a behavioral finance person during that time period, you would have been okay. You would have picked up on those signals. Are you a fan of roller coasters? I'm going someplace with this, so indulge me for a second. You are? I see I'm not really, but I'll do it. So – Typical roller coaster, you go up very slowly. It's a slow rise. You go up, you hear the creaking, but it continues to rise. You never think you're going to get to the top. And then you finally get to the top and you pause for a brief second before you sort of go down a huge hill. It feels to me as if, in terms of the market, we already went down the first hill and we saw that in June. We've been sort of climbing the next hill, which might actually be the longest climb. And then I think subsequently, although it feels like it's never going to end, it ends abruptly. And I do think that's where we're on the precipice of. This move in the S&P 500 has basically got us a 50% retracement of the all-time high made much earlier this year or late last year, depending on when it was, and the recent low we saw in June. This is a textbook 50% correction, something we alluded to, by the way, in mid-June as well. Here we are. I will tell you, although people will say earnings have been great, great, great. No. Earnings have been fine. The price action on the back of the earnings has been great. And we still have some big boys yet to report. And I'll point you to NVIDIA in a second. But again, markets at some point, fundamentals come into play. 
And to me, the fundamentals suggest that earnings growth is going to decrease. There's significant headwinds out there. And the multiples are still too rich in a number of different sectors. There's a big difference. Companies that actually make money, have a real business, and are going to survive are separated from the companies that don't. And now the companies that don't, it's almost as if they're on a different roller coaster. It's almost as if you don't want them to have real earnings or real revenue because it's easy to fantasize on some of these meme stocks. And Dan's not here, so I can talk about the meme stocks since he hates talking about them. But that's where. So we've got to separate those in two worlds. When you look at a company like Bed Bath & Beyond, symbol BBY, comes out BBBY, as we used to say. Yep. When you see something like that, to me, it's not a sign of a healthy market. It's a sign that the insanity is still out there. Yeah. I mean, you had a stock. So let's go back to March when mm-hmm. Ryan Cohen decided he was going to become an activist and take a stake because he wanted them to sell Bye Bye Baby. He wanted to get on the board. He wanted to do these things. So stock was 15. We were on air the next day. I think that happened. Stock traded pre-market 30, back to 15, mm-hmm. back to four. Round trip, as we said. Round trip. You talked about it. I did. And now look what just happened again. I know what Same happened. Same thing. Where did it hit? It hit 30 the other day, right? Then he comes out. He goes, I'm selling my stake. I'm selling. So there's activists, and then there's activists, right? So you got the value acts of the world, the Elliott management of the world, the third point of the world that actually want to go in, restructure companies, help them grow value. And then you have the Ryan Cohens of the world or the Adam Aarons of the world or even the Musk, whatever the world, that just say things because they think it's cool and want to do stuff really never amounts to anything. And that's my point. You can't really fix a Bed Bath & Beyond. You can go in and fix a Disney to tell them to sell ESPN or spin that out. You can go in and fix certain things, right? There's certain companies. And I think I was going to go through that whole exercise here. We are seeing a lot of activists right now. And people should pay attention to those are real activists. You may not like the geckos of the world, but they're tearing apart. Go That's ahead. it. Well, it's exactly right. Sir Lawrence Wildman actually wanted to fix Blue Star. If Seventy you and a half. Yeah. If you remember, like he actually had a vested <laughs> in. Like he thought he could fix it. Gecko didn't. Your Rufus Gecko pirate just Gecko. To buy the stock, watch it go higher, break it up, do that whole thing. It's very interesting that you mentioned. I think in some ways activists are good. There's an altruistic element to that. And I think Sir Lawrence Wildman in the movie Wall Street was that character. Gordon Gecko, portrayed by Michael Douglas, was not. He was in it for himself. By the way, nothing wrong with that. But let's make sure we identify what's going on. In terms of what happened just now with Bed Bath & Beyond, that stock was going nowhere. I don't think it was coincidence, Danny Moses, that the options, deep out of the money options that he bought, somehow made it into the ether. People will say, well, he thinks it's going there. No, he doesn't. That, to me, is a low-cost advertising way of getting your position higher. And that's exactly what happened. So if he's going to lose, let's just throw numbers out. A million dollars in his options, and I'm making up numbers now, but he makes $10 million in the stock move. Guess what? You do that trade every single day. Yeah, so those options were bought previously, right? Yes. Prior to this run-up. Yes. So we're on the same page. He bought a lot more stock than he did options. But yes, it was $60 strike price, I think. 60 and 80, I think. Now, again, people will say to me, well, guy, he thinks the stock is going. No, he doesn't. He doesn't think that at all. That, to me, is a way, again, to get the sort of the juice, the afterburner going, understanding when that makes its way out there into the public, people will start talking about it, and it becomes self-fulfilling. He never – I'm just speaking for him. I don't know, obviously. In his wildest dreams, he didn't think it was going there. But I think he did know that once the Reddit Wall Street bets crowd gets their arms around it, the underlying stock was going to go to a level that made him a shitload of money. Yes, I said shitload. Yeah, listen, let me go back through all this activist investing that's been going on, the real stuff. So Elliot Investment Management, 
sold out of their SoftBank. Why? Because they believed for a period of time that SoftBank should buy back their stock because they thought there was a mismatch on what the value of their portfolio was to where the equity was actually trading. They figured out over a period of time that the assets were mismarked and they got out. What did they do? They're, they got involved Cardinal Health, PayPal, Pinterest, Aerojet, right? These are all things that they've been involved in. There's a thesis behind all of them. Dan Loeb at third point, right? Disney, like I just before, he wants to spin out the ESPN, right? Corvex, MDU Resources, right? There's activists there. Like, read those versus reading this other stuff is what I'm talking about. And the market, by the way, in hindsight, probably should have been talking about this before, has been ripe. Activist investors, what this market did, we always said there's opportunities on the long side and the short side. They do real work. They're evaluating this. And they take a stake and they announce it. And yes, they're doing it to make money, guy. Let's not kid ourselves. They're not doing it to help people necessarily, employees, but they're capitalists. That's what they get paid to do. So take a look at that versus all this other bullshit that's going on. Because here's the SEC, right, who has done nothing. You know why they're doing nothing? This is now Marat. This is my rot. I'm rotting now. Oh, oh, oh. I'm going oh, right into the rot. All right, so wait a second. Rip off the, the tape. Brought to you by the absent Dan Nathan. Without further ado, yeah. Danny, Mo- Danny Moses is going to rip off the tape. Something here at On The Tape Podcast we call a rot. Danny, please. Not sponsored yet. We should get somebody to sponsor it, like some jockage commercial. Right. Save your rot. Go to Danny Moses. Something like that. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Man, I'm sure is smiling right now, but please continue. So let's go back to GameStop. A year and a half ago, right, where all hell broke loose, yeah. right, where the buy button supposedly was canceled and all that shit. And the, everybody got upset in the retail world. Again, it's Wall Street screwing us. So the SEC realizes they're in a tough position. Do you protect the retail investor from themselves by go, you know, going after and trying to figure out what happened? They kind of did nothing, right? If you remember, at the end of the day, the report was, yeah, there was some inefficiencies. Nothing really happened. We're not exactly sure what happened. Yeah, maybe Citadel was colluding here and there with with Melvin Capital, whatever it might have been, whatever. So it goes by the wayside. So now we have this second run-up, which is an SEC nightmare. And all these names, right? GameStop, Bed Bath, well, you name There's 10 of them, 12 of them now. They're running out of... So what do you do? Does the SEC have an investigation? Do they look and see what's happening? No. The reason they won't do it is because the retail world, who they're supposed to protect, thinks that they're out to hurt them. Right. So what, what do they wait for? They wait for the stocks to get killed, go back to the levels that they think that they should be, and then they'll come out and announce some type of examination. Their hands are completely tied. And where did this all start, Guy? This all started with Elon Musk. The whole thing, by not reprimanding him to the degree that they should have, just a $20 million fine for a fake 420 buyout, right? That's all it really was. It allowed to go and check. It opened the door for all of this. So now if you're the SEC, you didn't go after the biggest meme stock in the world. How do you go after all this stuff that's going on? You have Adam Aaron at AMC talking about what's going to happen when he reports the quarter. Stay tuned, ape fans. I got a surprise you. How is that even legal to even trade on, right? That kind of shit. Musk, the other day, I think I'll buy Manchester United soccer team. I think that's what I'm going to do. Stock trades up. Fiber, trade, this shit that's going on yeah. too long. So the SEC has done nothing. They're completely powerless. The only thing the SEC has done right was not allow coins in the crypto world to actually make it into the real, or to stop those from happening. Like, I give them credit for that. And that just, I think they got lucky. They got lucky with that. So this is all, again, people think, oh, you hate meme stocks. It's not about hating the meme stocks. It's about telling, and I know we have people that listen out there that trade these stocks. Which which is fine. Right. Some may make money. This kid out in USC, this 20-year-old made $120 million trading Bed Bath & Beyond or whatever he just did. Congratulations to him, right? We should have him on the show, by the way. But they're going to end up losing money. The majority of these people will, will lose money because they're just hoarding they're just joining a club or a crowd, and they believe in it. There's no – without any question, back to the poker reference, cards speak in the long run. You right. can have these things trade to wherever they want to go. We saw Volkswagen 15, 12 years ago. We've, we've seen crazy shit. Tilray, we saw four years. We've seen stuff, guy, in our careers. We know how this ends. Yeah. So 
Shame on the SEC for not being very vocal about it and saying just a statement. Hey, retail, and re- hey, retail investor, I'm out to protect you guys. You need to do fundamental analysis here because you shouldn't pay attention to a lot of the gossip and stuff that's out there. And it's just shit. It's just bad. No, look, I agree. They're so far behind the curve on this one. This completely blindsided them. I don't think they understood the power of the mob, the mob in this case, you know, vis-a-vis social media and what it can do and how quickly these stories begin to sort of get around the market and how quickly these stocks move. My concern with this one specifically is for probably 75% of the people that got involved, I'm sure they're the people that bought the stock somewhere north of 25. And a day later, it was a teenager. That's a problem. And I think people are like, oh, my God, it's sort of the old horse adage, they're off, you lose. And that's exactly what this year. So we're not trying to protect you from yourselves. That's not the point. We're not trying to be arrogant here. There's no condescending comments coming out of us. Just understand what the game is. And if you can gamify it as well as some of these other people, go at it. But understand that that's exactly what it is. It's the gamification of the stock market, something you talked about 15, 16 months ago, Danny. Yeah, we talked about that and we talked about sports gambling which is part of that as well, which I want to lead into here also, which is the same aspect, right? People had a DraftKings account, a Robinhood account, and a Coinbase account, and they kind of see that. And you can see that still is pervasive. I'd much rather have the Yankees last night, bottom of the 10th, the odds were 20 to 1 for them to win and hit that, right, guy? It was That's a nice walk-off. That was a nice walk-off by, the way, off by Donaldson. Josh Donaldson, about freaking, this is an MVP of the league that's done jack shit all year, finally had his signature moment as a New York Yankee. I hope Danny Moses, and I think you would agree, that might be that might turn the tide back well, for the Yankees yeah, this season. Just to be clear, I'm not a Yankee fan, but I'm a sports fan, so I like seeing cool shit like that, that last night. Cool. That was cool. The Mets are going to sweep them next Monday, Tuesday. We should make a bet on that, but that's that'd be quite a spectacle. You know, that, see, you yeah. and Dan do your thing. Yeah. If you've noticed over the last, we've been together a long time now. I mean, we started this in January of 2021. Is that correct? Yep. So what is this? August now. We that's started a, right when GameStop. This whole that's when I it all started. I understand. I'm yeah. just trying to do the math here. I mean, we're some 20 months into this thing. Close. Have you ever heard me make a bet? No. Nope. nope. No, that's you and Dan. And Dan went down that rabbit hole, and he's never been able to extract himself from it. Here he is with $100 sitting in front of him in the form of two $50 bills. Already took And he's back. not here to collect. No, he's not getting so it. So tough shit. So let's talk about the gambling stuff. Please. Right? So for years, I get it. DraftKings, FanDuel, they all spend tremendous amount of money, right? So it's all marketing costs. And I get it. I know the short thesis very well. We are now anniversarying here on like two to three years of kind of sports gambling being legal. It's going to get approved in California probably later this year. So on the come. And all these companies that are competing against each other, BetMGM, FanDuel. Caesars. They can rattle competing. them all off. Right. So you see, that's all you see. I don't know. I don't even remember what ads there used to be on sports before gambling. I can't even remember Gatorade. I don't know what it was. But they all have kind of come to, to the realization they got to slow down the spending, that they're entrenched now. This is going to be a huge season. Obviously, it doesn't take a genius to figure out this will be a record-breaking season for online gambling. But I think the seeds have been sown. And these stocks now look at Sport Radar, SRAD, right? Look at MGM. These things are starting to move. Intain. These things are acting DraftKings. Like, yes, they're moving with kind of the rest of the market, but I actually believe the short thesis on a lot of these names. I'm not saying they're not overvalued, but that's a tough macro train to be short ahead of. And so when you think about Sport Radar came out with their numbers, how many businesses in this world right now are accelerating, like in terms of revenue growth, right? And marketing spends coming down. So that's going to be a great combination, obviously, to see better growth in these companies. So I would not be short these names right now. I think you're going to see, if anything, consolidation may come in these names. And listen, there's two sectors 
right now that we're going to need over the next several years. It's sports gambling. I'm talking for tax revenue because we're if we're going to what we think we are. But I bet you I know what the other one is. What is it? Cannabis. Yes, correct. So meanwhile, so those two kind of go together sometimes, I guess, if you're crazy enough to bet. Anyway, so do you think that the Big Ten just signs this? You know, bill. Okay, whatever. Why? Why? Unbelievable. Guy? I know why. Why guy? Because of gambling. Exactly because right. Of sports gambling. Let Danny me read Bucks. you. Let me read you the opening weekend in college football. That, with the exception of the alumni of these teams and players' family and the players. It's a marquee schedule, right? This is August 27th. The real season starts September 3rd. But the reason you have these names on the 27th and these games, Austin P and all this stuff, which is great. I love Austin P. My point is that people watch it now. Why are they watching it? There's only one reason. Because they got action. Exactly, because they got action. So those type things to me, in-game, in-game. And we're going to have Chris Bevilacqua on here in a couple weeks to kick off the NFL season, pun intended, guy with us, who runs Simple Bet, who's partners with DraftKings, who's doing real in-game live wagering stuff, right? Using artificial intelligence, which, by the way, I'm going to talk about in a second. Artificial intelligence for lending and artificial intelligence for sports gambling are two different worlds, obviously. But it's exploding here. So there's, it's no going back. It's, you know, I'm not saying there's not bad things that can happen from people being addicted to, to gambling, but it is what it is. So I want to talk about the broader market. By the way, Chris Bevilacqua, I like saying that, not to be confused with great the dude. great Kurt Bevilacqua, who had a cup of coffee with the Yankees. As you're listening to this podcast, it is Friday. Maybe you're listening to it on Saturday. I don't know. But you're not listening to it on Thursday. Thursday, the 18th. Wall Street Journal headline. This is really interesting because I said exactly this a week ago. Wall Street bets that the Fed is bluffing in a high-stakes inflation game. Here's the point of that headline, in my opinion. Markets getting bought up. People are buying stocks thinking at exactly that. With the data coming out as soft as it's been, the Fed's going to have to back off. And they don't want to be behind that curve. They want to be ahead of that curve. And they hear the Fed talk tough. They hear them talk hawkish. We're going to fight inflation. But the data suggests maybe at some point they're going to have to stop. And people have been buying stocks hand over fist in anticipation of that. I would submit that's completely wrong course of action. Now, it's been right that stocks have gone higher, but I got to tell you something. I think this Fed is steadfast in their want to get inflation down, and they've trotted out just about every single Fed governor imaginable and people that aren't even there anymore to say exactly that. Yet the market thinks they're bluffing. Thoughts? I'm Captain Obvious. So (laughs) let me explain. So in the Fed minutes, it says they could see the pace of hiking slowing. Really? Back-to-back 75 bips? Yeah, you bet your ass the pace is going to start slowing at some point, right? It's hard to imagine more. So I don't think anyone believes there's 1% rate hike coming on the table during a meeting. There's either 50 or 75 maybe coming next. Who knows? Maybe 25 if things really slow down a lot. So they honestly, that from those Fed minutes, if you really read them, don't take the quotes and extract them to how you want to view the market, positive or negative. Read them in in their entirety. Because really what it said to me is they have no effing idea. And that's, by the way, that's fine. Because I don't think anybody really has a, a sure thesis for what's going to no, happen. No, nor do I. But I'm not a Fed governor. I'm not the one that was begging for inflation for years and then saying somehow I could control it once we got it and then saying it's transitory for months, months, months when it was clear to the entire freaking world that it was anything but transitory. Then finally throwing in the towel in November, now have an inflation rate which peaked at 9.1%, which recently made it 8.5%. You wanted to get to 2 I got to tell you, the move from 9 to 7 might be pretty easy. The move from 7 to 2 is going to take a lot longer than people think. And oh, by the way, this is off topic, but I'll just mention it. 
Crude oil getting off the mat over the last couple of days. Keep an eye on it. But the one that nobody wants to talk about it for whatever reason, and the one that actually has an equal impact on industry is natural gas. And look what's been going on in nat gas over the last week or so. Yes, Danny Moses, it's been going higher, and it's going to continue to go higher. I was doing, I was doing the uh, yeah, higher thumbs wink. Thumbs up. No, higher. Higher oh, wink. You what know, was that? That card was card sharks. sharks. Card sharks, yes, exactly. I love that right. again. Change that game. card. Yeah. Change that card. But yeah, listen, that's a big problem. Right? You're, you've been talking about this. The flip side of all this excitement about the market the Fed done is that it's going to force the Fed to keep going because that will reinforce inflation pressures that are going to occur. So other side of Goldilocks, we've said that a hundred times. I won't say it again. But the other impact this is having is on corporate bonds, right? And yes. On, and on yields. And so S&P Global Ratings, who we can talk about what they did in 2008. That's a whole other discussion. Now, now they want to save the world, right? They're talking oh, it's about, interesting you say it. Save yeah, the world. See, that ties us back to By exactly. the way, by in a few minutes, Tommy Vitor of Pod Save the Queen will be here. Back to right. you. So they have, the, in corporate bond world, there's something called Fallen Angels. There's a great article this morning. I think it's in the journal about the amount of fallen angels. So if you get downgraded into junk status, that you're then a fallen angel. So just a point of reference, last year, I think there was $32 billion total of debt that fell into this category. S&P estimates that globally that number potentially could reach $176 billion this year. What does that mean? It means your HYG and your J&K and all this stuff, and pension funds can't buy things that are rent. So this is what we've talked about before, about bond selection and stock selection, right? You can't just buy a passive fixed income ETF. You're better off buying, a bro- if brokers still know how to do this, an individual corporate bond, right? Can you imagine? People even do, do you that? Imagine? I don't, Can you imagine? No, I don't think people, yeah. you know who does that? I'll tell you who does that, Federal yeah, Reserve. Yeah, Federal Reserve. <laughs> that's true. No, it's true. You got it. That's true. I'm so glad Dan's not here to talk about this because he's oh, the guys, move on from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. No, but it's true. There's been no well, price move discovery. On. Okay, yeah. Dan, you're not here. We're going to move on from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. The problem is, that's the story. Everything is predicated on these bozos. Back to you. Yeah. So listen, it doesn't. Ha- it also has an impact on other things, right? So we talked about this before, funding costs. We're going to talk about the banks in a second. Yes. Before we get to real banks, let's go to fake banks, right? So Upstart and affirming these guys, again, Carvana, companies that depend on the ABS market to fund their balance sheets. What does that mean? They make a loan. They're not a bank. They don't hold it. They have to sell them to invest. So banks provide them capital. They create the loans and then put them in packages and sell them. As soon as that bottleneck's up, as we've seen, they have choices. Well, last week, I don't know if anyone saw an upstart, right? They actually came out and said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to buy back our own paper because we're so we're going to use our cash to buy back paper. Let me tell you, that happened to subprime. That's exactly what happened. So Wall Street cut the funding to all the subprime lenders in you know, 2005, 6, 7, a period of time. Those companies had no choice but to say, you know what? We're going to balance sheet these loans. Hold on. No, no, I'm, yeah. I, I want to. Yes, I remember that. And the way they position it, the way they package it was we're so confident that that's where we're going to buy our own stuff back. In reality, they had no choice. It's all the way they package it then, and it's the way they're packaging it now. So, I mean, this is the quote from the upstart that was, was last week, right? I don't know how I missed it, but whatever. So Upstart plans to start using cash reserves to buy some of its own asset-backed bonds. Company executives said on an earnings call last week, our mission is to try and bring people who might not seem optically creditworthy through their traditional banking lens into the system. This is, was the CFO. Hold right? on. What is right. optically? Was that somebody uh, just, who wears a suit? No, optically. So, oh, you have a 530 FICO, but oh, it must be different because okay. we're going to run your, know, we're your social media and see if you approve. We're on a journey of convincing the markets that they can rely on our technology and we are comfortable stepping in with our balance sheet to provide financing to do it. To which I wrote to myself to mention to myself, and then under, underneath it to myself, I wrote nighty night. Okay, <laughs> that's it. It's over. It's over. Okay. So I, I was short upstart, right? I'm reengaging 
re-engaging Batman here because that's all he needs to see. And let me explain. I want to talk one other thing. This no, other, it's your podcast. I don't want to lose people. Please. So these things, like, people don't, because there's no cycles, right? People don't see cycles. That's bullshit, what that guy just said. But there was a guy named Mark Rosenthal, really close friend of ours, who ran a fixed income fund for us when we were at Front Point, right? He was, he was at Seabass. He saw the world ending. He told me and our group how to trade the world ending. He was one of the really instrumental guys to kind of do it. In 2003 and four and five, when subprime was really taking off, something happened. Traditionally, subprime bonds, everybody hang with me here, subprime loans tend to default within 12 to 18 months. That's what they do. You get a car, you make payments for the first seven or 12 months, you buy a house, you make payment, whatever it might be, you tend to trend. This time was different in 2003, four and five. Why? Because brokers, mortgage brokers and banks were inventing new products. They invented 228 mortgages, 327. What does that mean? Arms, right? Come out of your loan. So what happened was, Subprime bonds, hang with me, everybody, were prepaying within six months. Seven, you never saw the deterioration. Okay? You follow me, guy? Yeah, I, I completely follow So what you. happened was Moody's, S&P, everybody just jumped on the train. This time's different. No. Lending is never different. Let's shift to the banks here, but lending's never different. My, my point is that look under the sheets and what is going on. A firm upstarting these guys. It's all bullshit. You can't. You can't AI lending. It just doesn't work. The eh? deterioration was there. They just created products that w- created its opaque environment where you couldn't see it unless you were Danny Moses or the aforementioned Rosenthal. Well, you probably, Rosie. I was just going to say. My favorite Rosie. My Rosie. Rosie. Let's yeah. talk about the banks. And we're going to talk about indiv- a couple individual stocks as well. And if you're listening to this, we're not doom. Stop with the doom and gloom stuff. We're not. You have to understand what's going on with the markets. I think I understand, and I got to tell you, this high stakes game of chicken, I think that's exactly what's going on. But you should look at some of the stocks you own over the weekend and say, all right, stock X, Y, and Z has run 30% from where I bought it, or 35% since the June low. What am I thinking here? Those are the conversations you have to have with yourself. Banks are really interesting. And I'm telling you folks, this one we nailed on the screws. When Goldman Sachs was trading 275 before earnings, Write a book. we came in here on the On The Tape podcast, and I said, look, folks, I'm telling you now, Goldman is now trading at book value. Goldman's quarter is going to be excellent in the form of fixed income, currency, and commodities. They are going to crush it on the trading front. And I said, I'm not certain how much the market will reward them for it, but this is going to be a great quarter. The stock will trade higher. Fast forward to today. Goldman Sachs has completely outperformed some of the other banks. That, to me, is not a great sign. It's a great sign if you own Goldman Sachs. But when you look at a J.P. Morgan, which bottomed out, I think, around 106 or so in the middle of June, currently trading either side of 120, that's not nearly commensurate with the move Goldman Sachs has seen over that same period of time. And that is telling a story. We haven't even mentioned the fact, and we're not going to dwell on this, that again, twos, tens, around 40 basis points or so inverted. That bottomed out around 50 basis points. By the way, you'll see that again, folks, coming to a theater near you. That does not augur particularly well for traditional banks, despite what you hear from people out there. Yeah, so the banks, like we've said, are going to trade like utility stocks, right? Safe places, right? A lot of capital, they're fine. Why is Goldman outperforming? Because they're great at what they do. <laughs> because what they've made up for in lack of M&A, mergers and acquisition, or lack of you know, initial public offerings, IPOs, as we call them, they're trading their way out of this. So they might be losing some counterparty customers in the trading world, but they're doing a great job of trading themselves, as we well know. Morgan Stanley, is a, I think, plays second fiddle to that, but I think that's how they also get viewed. Then you have the consumer banks, you have the JP Morgan, the Wells Fargo, the Bank of America. We've been saying this all along. 
don't buy the XLF. Buy the individual stocks. And if you had done that on Goldman, you would have seen, right, guy, massive out performance relative. So the banks are a safe place to be. They're just not sexy. So can you park money there? Yes. But look for, again, look for the companies that have increased their credit reserves and not released them or built them accordingly because they're in for rude awakening because credit only has one way to go, guy. Back probably a year or so ago, you sort of put a bullseye on Walmart and you, you, and you created the bullish thesis, which was right for a long period of time. The world obviously changed quickly underneath their feet. And, you know, we, I don't want to go down what happened at Walmart, but I will tell you, as you know, the inventory build that they saw was like four standard deviations worse than the worst one they'd ever seen. I mean, typically, Walmart's a company that understands inventories better than any company in the history of mankind, and somehow they managed to screw it up. The thing that saved Walmart was the next day, Target did exactly the same thing in their release. That's a couple quarters ago. Why do I mention Walmart? Because, again, if you listen to these things, and the stock has bounced, and it's basically gotten back half of the move we saw from the recent high five or six months ago to that trough low. We're about halfway through it. But we're still not there. But if you listen to what they're saying, their customers are being affected by exactly what's going on in the world. Inflation is a problem. And again, does it go away overnight? No, it doesn't go away overnight. When Walmart tells you this, when Target tells you this, when a litany of companies tell you the same thing over and over again, when the Federal Reserve tells you this, it's a problem. The stock market says, no, it's not. I say, listen to the reports. Listen to the CEOs, the CFOs, and then make your own judgment, Danny Moe. Yeah, I feel like it's Peter Lynch 101, right? Yes. Listen to what they say. Just, like, don't overthink it. What is Walmart doing? So just so we know, Walmart has basically round-tripped probably since we started this show. It's gone, it's gone as low as 115 or one whatever, 112, as high as 165. It's sitting at 140. But the one thing that ha- that is happening, which I thought might happen, is the middle and upper class are starting to trade down exactly. to shop That's at Walmart. A, and if you listen to that, now, people took that as a good thing. No. No, 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 Maybe for Walmart. Maybe for Walmart, yeah. For Walmart, it might be a good thing. For Target, it might be a good thing. But what is it really saying? It's not, again, you have to sort of do two standard deviations away from this. What is that saying? What is that telling you? To me, it doesn't paint a rosy outlook. No, and what's really interesting is we talked that Walmart may have pre-announced, you know, the day before the Fed meeting, just to, hey, Fed, look at this. This is what's happening in the real world. And then they beat the numbers, actually. They beat revenues decently, right? Not a, not a ton percentage They lowered wise. guidance. And, and then they, they beat, beat it a week guidance. later. Just yeah. so we know, the quarter was closing in five, six days from... So, okay. So then they, they wanted to you know give upside surprise to the street. And then I think they raised the low end of their guidance for the rest of the year. Whatever. My point is that I feel now from a two, two to three standard deviation, they released that the day before the Fed, the Fed would see it for a reason. I think when companies like Walmart report... If you're not, if you're the Federal Reserve and you're not listening to Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, what better real-time information can you get? I don't need to know what a doctor jobs report is or what. Oh, continuing claims go up, but it, but initial jobless claims go down. No, I want to know what what is happening in the real world, not on statistics. Which I'm not saying they're all manipulated. I'm just saying they're very inconsistent at times. So, you know, we're gonna get we're gonna have one more round here. We're gonna have, we're gonna have Jackson Hole. We're going to have another round of economic data for the August print before the September. We'll see what happens. It's interesting. Jackson Hole's coming up. And we're going to obviously, we mentioned Peter Bookvar. We're going to talk to Peter on Monday. That's going to drop. And we're talking about exactly that. Peter's got some great thoughts. But I'll ask you this I made this point on Fast Money. And again, this is what makes markets. I think the higher the market goes, the more latitude it gives Jerome Powell specifically to talk hawkish and actually be hawkish. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. We talked about that before. I think it actually gives them more ammunition to feel like, all right, let's do this. We weren't going to go 75 in September. 
seems like the market can take it, though. Let's do the 75 instead of the 50. That's the incremental difference, Guy, I think, with, with what you're kind of talking about there. No, I agree. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fascinating to see what comes out of that. Because, again, you know, from 9-1 to 8-5, everybody's doing jumping jacks and the world is saved. The reality is it's still a problem. So we're going to see. And I guess the good news is they gave themselves enough runway. In, and this is the way the calendar lined up between the last meeting and the meeting we're going to have in mid to late September. So that's going to be interesting to see. What sticks out to you here, though? Because, again, the cross-currents, Danny, are many, to say the least. And, you know, I'm trying to piece this all together. I will tell you semiconductors to me, again, I think semiconductors today, and Tim Seymour said this, so I'm not trying to steal it from him, but semis today are what crude oil was 15 or 20 years or so ago. I mean, semiconductors are basically the lifeblood of a lot of things. And you listen to a lot of these companies lowering guidance, cutting revenue forecasts, there's some school of thought out there that NVIDIA lowered revenue, lowered guidance a couple weeks ago on gaming. And now there's a thought that, you know, when they release earnings, I believe on the 24th, we're going to see them do it again. Thoughts? Things don't start to trend down like that and just reverse course that quickly, right? We talked about it. this is a 13, 14 year buildup. This is secular, not cyclical. So as that unwind starts to occur, you're not going to have, you may have less bad occurring, which I think is the reason the markets have rallied. And that's fine. And certain companies can excel in this in this market you know, environment for sure. But I just think less bad is not a great investment thesis if you're expecting a V or even a U at this point. There could be sectors that will benefit from it. But to me, it's just been a washing machine, this site. And, and I'm not, I don't even think I'd be doing well, obviously, if I was actively trading on a desk. I wouldn't because it's nonsensical, right? This is not a, a fun tape to trade. And I said on our, our last show, right now, if you're a hedge fund, you're entering, you know, you're in the Ides of August, you're, you're heading into the end of the summer. You want to take down your book, go into Labor Day, enjoy your last few weeks. If you're even for the year, maybe you're down five, maybe you're up three. There's a big difference in being even and down five and down 12 and down 15. They see what they need, where they need to be. And so the thing that's been happening also is the pairing of the risk down, right? So a lot of these meme stocks and other stocks that may not be, even be memes that have run up, that have high short interest, hedge funds are like, you know what? Just cover it and get out of the way. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. And if you're bullish on the market... The last thing that you want to see from a technical perspective is that shorts go cover everything because they are your natural buyer. So I don't know if I answered your question. I think there's a behavioral finance aspect to this and a realization that these companies that have been doing well for 10, 12 years that start to not do as well, they don't snap back and do well again. It's not These aren't one-quarter phenomenons. And so if the inventory build up, indeed, at Target and Walmart and Home Depot and Lowe's because of the shortage of products, they wanted to make sure that they had them, and COVID and supply chain, yes – it will t- you, can, you can squeeze that out over a period of maybe six to eight quarters before you kind of normalize again. So I figure for every quarter that went by when they were building, you got to kind of have that on the other side. So every company is different. And I'll just say this again. like Take the time. The market's a fun. The market's a great place to trade. The market's incredible. It's dynamic. But do yourself a favor and spend more time really understanding these companies. And don't get caught up on, the, on, these, on these Reddit boards and all this stuff just to be a part of something because you will lose. You will lose. Last year, you had an epic and historic run in the league where they play for pay. That's a hat tip to Mike Frances. Yep. It was I just sitting watching it every week. I it was it was staggering the accuracy with which you picked games in the NFL. As we get closer to the beginning of the season, my sense is you've been doing some work on some teams and I just want to give a taste to some people out there. The obvious teams are the obvious teams. They come in the form of the Buffalo Bills, the Bills of Buffalo. I think there's some people out there that think the Chargers might have some magic left in their tank. We shall see. 
I think there's some Raven fans out there that still think somehow magically they can do damage. In the NFC, a bit of a horse of a different color. Can the Rams do it again? I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Is anybody coming out of the NFC East? Chances are no. Do the Vikings finally figure it out? Is there a team on your radar screen that you're really doing work on in some of your over-under work? Or just do you want to sort of give the audience just a taste of how Danny Moses thinks? You know what? The Buffalo Bills are going to win the Super Bowl. Barring injury. Barring Josh Allen getting hurt. They are. When you get that close, and you that, that's what it takes. you got to lose a couple of those, those games to get there. So I like to take a few weeks at the beginning of the season, see how teams are playing, what other surprise teams will be. I'm not going to give those out. Right now, guy, I'm going to wait a couple weeks. Okay, just so I because you got injuries and pre- you got things that are happening. I don't want to be out there, but as it stands right now, the Bills should win that division, right? And they should go. They should have home field, and they should go to the Super Bowl. That's what I believe, and I think they're going to win it. I think they have all the tools. Joe Burrow, if you're listening, we didn't mention you. I dig you, by the way. I think there's a chance that you make it back as well. But when we come back, Tommy Vitor from Pod Save America. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, Visit iConnections.io. Tommy Vitor is co-founder of Crooked Media, co-host of Pod Save America, and the host of the foreign policy-focused Pod Save the World. He worked for President Obama for nine years, including serving as the White House National Security Spokesperson. So, Dan, last week on the On The Tape podcast featuring you and the intelligent, brilliant, sexy Danny Moses, uh, we brought up the name of Tommy Vitor. And I said, I said, what's that podcast? I think On The Tape, On The Save The Pod, Save The World podcast. I mean, what are those cats doing? So I figured might as well get them in here to explain it. Without further ado, Tommy Vitor, ladies and gentlemen. Guy, it's great to see you, Dan. Also great to see you. Here's the deal, Tommy. You probably heard your name, and, and we really appreciate your listenership of On The Tape Podcast. And I'm a power listener now. I know. When you were on last back in April, I mentioned to you that I've been listening to you guys on Pod Save the World and Pod Save America. And I think where a guy got tripped up here a little bit was he's like, are you guys America first? He's like, what are your po-? He's trying to figure out what's going on here. What are you saving? What is your pod saving? And has anyone ever suggested that you guys are an America first? Spot. 
You know, when we started the show, we thought it was like a funny, ironic, stupid thing to suggest that a podcast could do anything, let alone save the country or the world. And I think people might have forgotten about the irony along the way. Although when Obama came on Pod Save the World, he called it Podcast the World, which was a good slap down and a reminder of sort of who we are and our station in life. But here we are. So, Tommy, I'm half Italian, half Sicilian, Roman Catholic, although I will tell you I'm not a hugely practicing Roman Catholic, so I'm not one to quote from the Talmud. But the Talmud says to save one life is as if you've saved the entire world. So I would submit that if you just reach one person, and now I'm actually being serious, if you can just reach a few people, I think you've really done what you've set out to do. And hopefully those people then talk to other people becomes a viral thing. I didn't expect this to be sort of a spiritual journey, but I like it. I also, I want you to know that I know, like as a power listener, I know you like pop culture. I know you like movies, music. So I, I came prepared with some new lingo for you. I want you to be able to reach kind of like the Gen Zers of the world. I think the sky's the limit for this show, but you just got to expand. Tommy, embedded in that statement is the notion that I'm somehow not reaching those people. Maybe you want me to reach them at a deeper level. It's just a lingo thing. It's a lingo thing. A couple of words. We can get into it later, but we'll talk about it later. I think Tommy's picked up on that guy really touches with a specific audience. It's somewhere in the boomer crowd. Oh, no. Let's get into it because Tommy does Pod Save America, and they're primarily focused on a lot of domestic issues here, and there's a whole host of stuff to talk about. But last time you were on in April, we we're really focused on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and just really some of the kind of knock-on effects that we spent a lot of time talking about, supply chains, inflationary pressures on industrial commodities, uh, access to food. I think you guys have covered this really well. Almost a quarter of the world's wheat is produced in Russia. And and in Ukraine here. So we want to follow up on some of the things that are going on in Europe and how you see it kind of playing out a little bit and some of the things that have just passed and what I think a lot of people are labeling as a sort of historic. I think we all agree that the inflation reduction, the IRA, it's kind of maybe some misbranding here, but we want to hit on that. There's some really important political implications. And then, of course, we've been talking about this issue with China and Taiwan for a while. We touched on it with you in April a little bit. It seems like there's definitely some things have been bubbling up of late. And then how all of this relates into what might happen in the midterms, because for us, this is really important stuff as it relates to the economy, as it relates to markets and the kind of gaming of it. So let's just start with where we are in Ukraine, at least how you see things kind of playing out. I think you told us a few months ago, this was not going to end anytime soon. Where are you right now, Tommy, on all this? Same place. I mean, it's just a slow, brutal truly horrifying grind. I mean, I saw yesterday that the U.S. estimates that Russian casualties are around 500 troops per day. That's killed and wounded. That's a staggering amount of people. Colin Call, I think he's the Deputy Secretary of Defense, thinks that there's been like 20,000 deaths for the Russian side. 5,000 of those are this the Wagner Group, which is a group of sort of private mercenaries. The Ukrainians are suffering enormous losses too. The thing has been a bit of like a World War I style trench warfare stalemate for a while. Ukraine is now going on offense in the south. They're using these HIMARS long-range rocket weapons that the U.S. has given them recently to hit ammo depots, air defense sites, other high-value targets, and they're, and they're making some progress. They also hit deep into Crimea recently, which was sort of a strategic game-changer in a lot of ways if the Russians suddenly have to defend the entire Crimean peninsula. But the truth is, like, there's not a clear end in sight. It's incredibly ugly. And as you guys have talked about on the show, the knock-on economic effects 
across Europe and the world are still enormous. Well, as it turns out, all quiet is not on the Western front or Eastern front for that matter. I read the book, believe it or not, saw the movie too, for that matter. But it's all quiet here because it's now, you know what? We don't seem to talk about it here in the United States anymore. It was 24-7 for that period of time, rightly so, by the way. Now we've moved on to other things. That's problematic to your point because things have gotten worse there. And one of the things I've said, Tommy, and I absolutely believe this, Forget what you think about Putin. My sense is this whole thing with Ukraine, on top of trying to reunify the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire, whatever the hell it is, is to control the commodities market in the form of Ukraine, which, as Dan just said, is the fourth largest commodity nation on the planet. Yeah, no, look, the knock-on effects in terms of people starving all over the world, mostly in poor countries, a lot of them in Africa, is just beginning to be felt. I mean, the Russians allowed a couple of ships worth of grain out of Odessa, the port in Ukraine recently. That's not going to begin to fill the gap that is going to be created by constant warfare. I mean, you can't farm in the midst of constant warfare. And then there's the natural gas piece of this. I I saw this morning a company called Uniper, which is Germany's largest importer of natural gas, reported a loss today of more than $12.2 billion for the first half of the year because there were dwindling supplies from Russia of natural gas and they had to seek more expensive gas on the open market. I mean, Germany's, we could be in a situation where people are rationing gas in their homes and entire industries collapse because German, it's like a heavy industrial nation. They do aluminum, chemicals. These are huge industries and they're incredibly energy intensive. And I think the Germans get like 35, 40% of their gas from Russia. And so, I mean, it's going to get worse as we go into the winter. So the other point you said that diplomatically, there's been no progress made. And you just mentioned the fact that Crimea, the ammunition depot, and then a strike on what looked like nine jets, Russian jets. And I heard you guys on Pod Save the World, you and Ben, I think the on, on the episode that dropped on Wednesday here, is that this really opens up, Guy was just talking about fronts, it really opens up a new front. It almost is a sort of messaging in a way. And you said that Zelensky, in a comment this week, suggested that they will not cede until they retake Crimea. And so, again, I think all of us would love to see some sort of diplomatic solution, but is it really opening the door for a much longer protracted fight if the Ukrainians are just not willing to kind of cede anything here? And the success in which they've had in some of these occupied territories, does it just kind of mean that they are digging in here? Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge for Zelensky is twofold. I mean, one, The more we learn about the Russian treatment of civilians in these occupied areas, the more horrifying it is, the more it starts to feel like echoes of World War II, indiscriminate torture, slaughter of individuals, children being shipped over the border from Ukraine and forced to emigrate into Russia. I mean, sort of the worst things you could possibly imagine. So if you're Zelensky, I don't know how you can talk to a population that's seeing this, that knows people that are experienced this and suggest that you're willing to give up any amount of Ukrainian territory, whether it's eastern provinces where there's been an ongoing war since 2014, or Crimea where the Russians moved in and basically took it over without firing a shot, and have, frankly, like more legitimate's the wrong word, but kind of like defendable historic claims or ties to the territory. So it's not clear if Zelensky's setting up a negotiation and he's anchoring his initial offer as a maximalist one. But if we take him literally, it doesn't speak to an easy outcome that any of us can see here. 
This is just my opinion. We should, we United States should be doing all we can because it's the right thing to do. Full stop. I mean, it, it begins and ends there. Okay. So just get that out there. We should also be doing everything we can because economically, if we don't, this could potentially be a disaster for Europe, which it's becoming, and then subsequently a disaster here. Unfortunately, it seems as though, and I don't follow this as closely as I probably should, this comes down right on party lines right now. You know, you put on Tucker's show and Zelensky's a corrupt guy and what are we doing there? And then the flip side of the coin, we should be doing everything we possibly can to help. I mean, it's probably a pretty obvious question. Why has it become so polarized and such a political hot button topic? I think it's a little more complicated than that guy. You're right that like the Tucker Carlson's of the world, the Rand Paul's of the world are a lot more isolationist. And they're thinking like their comments are basically we shouldn't be interfering in any of these wars anywhere. I do think if you look at the comments and actions by Mitch McConnell or a broader sort of subset of Republican senators, there is a lot of bipartisan alignment. I mean, I forget the exact number, but they passed a bill months and months ago that authorized like 40 billion dollars in aid to Ukraine. And so they're beginning to draw that down. So they did set this thing up for the long term. And I agree with you. I mean, I think there's a long sort of like TikTok that's a a nerd speak for a backstory story in the Washington Post yesterday that talked about how from sort of October of last year to today, how the US learned about this intelligence efforts to prevent the war negotiations. And it talks about how Macron and the French kept trying to broker some sort of peace talks with the Russians and they thought they were making progress and Putin just lied to them. So I'm with you in that. I don't think Putin backs down from this. I think he probably views it as existential for the country and for himself and that there's a a credible argument to be made that the way to end the war fastest is to help the Ukrainians win it because I'm not sure that Putin's going anywhere. Fair enough. So let me rephrase then. I agree with you maybe in terms of politically, in terms of our representatives, it's become bipartisan, which is a good thing. I will tell you, for the man and woman on the street, it comes right down on party lines. And that, to me, is problematic because it speaks to a bigger problem in this country, which we'll probably get into. I mean, everything now is you're either on the right side of things or on your left side of things. And people that don't believe in this are pissed off. And there are other people that are pissed off that we're not doing enough. Yeah, that's fair. And listen, I think people are right to wonder why after 20 years of fighting in Afghanistan that just ended after a disastrous war in Iraq, all sorts of other conflicts that, you know, my former boss was part of Barack Obama, why we would be so heavily engaged in another war. I do think you have to continually message why this matters. The irony of all of this is that there's another geopolitical hotspot that we've talked about in the past, and that's the the situation with China and Taiwan. And one of the reasons why this is kind of flared up, because some of those same people on a certain side of the aisle who oppose involvement in Ukraine are over there going to Taiwan and doing bipartisan trips there. They know that it's going to aggravate the Chinese. And so I do think it's interesting in the last few days or so that the Chinese are sending soldiers to Russia to do joint exercises. This is at a time where Chinese military are running exercises in, around, and over Taiwan. So tell me, how have you come to think about this issue here a little bit? Because again, it's a very complicated political thing. It goes back decades, multiple presidencies um, and administrations, and there's really no clear-cut answer to it other than the fact that I think our tensions have probably never been higher with China and our support for a democratic 
part of something that China thinks is theirs is really likely to kind of have repercussions from potentially militarily, but obviously economically at a time where the global supply chain is fairly strained. So thoughts there about what's going on in China and how likely are we to see some sort of dust up in 2022? I think a lot of smart people, analysts that understand this stuff better than I do, think it's sort of not a question of if, but when the Chinese Communist Party tries to, quote unquote, reunify with Taiwan, in other words, invade. Xi Jinping is definitely someone who sees himself in historic terms. I think it was 2017, the the Chinese Communist Party literally enshrined his words into the party's constitution, which means like you cannot, you will not question Xi. It kind of elevates him to the level of Chairman Mao and Deng Xiaoping, right? Mao is the founder of the Chinese Communist Party. Deng was the guy who modernized the country and made them rich. That's the company he sees himself in. Great question on, I don't know that this is a 2022 problem or even a 2023 problem. Again, I'm literally guessing, but the Pelosi reaction was instructive. Like they ran days and days and days of large scale military exercises. Ed Markey, the center from Massachusetts, just led a delegation. The reaction was lower key, probably because he's not third in the line to the presidency. He's maybe less of a critic. I don't think his trip was public in advance. But it's certainly alarming. It's alarming for the people of Taiwan. The United States is required by law to provide military support to Taiwan so that they can defend themselves. It's a constant debate about how much support that entails, how advanced, how sophisticated it. But, you know, you guys have talked many times about the the economic stakes here when it comes to semiconductors, et cetera. I think it's a story for sure. I hope you're right that it's not a story this year or next year. I just think things move much quicker in today's world. And look, in terms of what's going on domestically, I do think, and this is not a political comment, I'm just trying to be down the middle on this one. I think the Biden administration has a lot of wins here. I think they do a shitty job of messaging, but that's probably for another conversation unless you want to address it. But what I'll say is, you know, as we get closer to the midterms, which, by the way, you're going to wake up one morning, they're going to be right here. Inflation's still a problem. And that seems to be the one thing that everybody is harping on. Dan mentioned this Inflation Reduction Act, which is one of the worst named things in the history of mankind. But again, I don't make those decisions. Now, what are your thoughts here? I mean, it seems as though they've stemmed the tide, them being the Biden administration in terms of their approval ratings and stuff, but it's still not going particularly well, at least on the public sentiment side. Yeah, I do think the approval rating is going to be a lagging indicator here. Guy, to your earlier point about bipartisanship, It's interesting and I think also unfortunate that the only way we can pass these kinds of industrial policies, these American renewal policies, is when you frame it as competition with China. I don't know that that's a good thing. Like, I'm glad the CHIPS Act passed. I think there's probably some some real fair critiques of it as kind of like corporate welfare and encouraging companies to do things they might do otherwise investment wise. But it's a bit of a bummer that like jingoism is what gets to bipartisanship. But again, that's another story. I do think Biden has racked up some really impressive successes. The CHIPS Act is one, the infrastructure bill. I don't think your people are going to be excited about it on the campaign trail, but it's a significant investment. The Zwahiri strike, the IRA. I hear why you guys think it was unfortunately named. I do think there's real value for like a Joe Manchin or other moderate Democrats to run around the country and say, we just passed the Inflation Reduction Act. That value gets turned on its head if inflation is not reduced, right? They'll say, hey, you promised us this was all going to be fixed and it hasn't happened. But 
the truth about the IRA is like, this is a bill whose impact will not be felt for years kind of by design. Obviously, you're very close to politics, but now since leaving the White House years ago, you're a media guy here and messaging is really important. You also spend a lot of time thinking about campaigns and how to successfully get messages across. So it's easy for us to cherry pick a name of something that we think is kind of silly or whatever. But all that being said, when you think about 2022 and where we are here, and as we barrel into the midterms, we know that there's obviously some very important primaries that have gone on just this week alone, obviously the one in Wyoming. I mean, it's not that important, but it's interesting to kind of see where the Republican base is on a lot of these topics. And if you think about 2022 is like, okay, Biden was limping into this year. I think that we were still, I think, bipartisan reeling from the pullout of Afghanistan, record low approval rating. The economy seemed to like all of a sudden hit the skids when interest rates started going higher. We had this geopolitical mess where right out of the gate, I don't think we were as emphatic as we ended up being in support of Ukraine. We had a stock market that was careening lower. Inflation, as Guy said, was on everybody's radar. Are we starting to come out of this here? The stock market's up, what, 15 16% or so from the lows. We're starting to see inflation come down. Guy's point about Ukraine not being on the front page is probably not a horrible thing politically. If the situation with China cools out a little bit, might we see a different political environment than a lot of us thought we were? And the last point I'll just make, without debating what the Supreme Court did with Roe here, you guys have done a great job documenting the political implications. If you look at that Kansas referendum, red state Kansas on this, you guys made the point 100,000 independent voters who could not vote in the primaries were activated and came out to vote on this referendum on Roe or on abortion rights in general. What does this all mean, the political calculus, as we head into now, we are, what, two months away from the midterms? Dan, sometimes I I need to like slap myself and remind myself that I'm a nerd that pays attention to politics all day, every day. And that makes me like a a space alien for, for most other people who don't give a shit. I hope I can say that. So I think that sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. And the fact that gas prices are cratering is an enormously important thing for the Biden administration. I do think a lot of the anxiety people were feeling, the right track, wrong track numbers, the hits to his approval can be tied directly to people literally seeing $5 gas every time they drive by it. And it wasn't just like mainstream media coverage. Like I'm not a big TikToker, but like there was constant coverage or jokes about gas prices on TikTok and on Instagram, right? It was like a thing people were talking about all the time. And the fact that basically the Chinese economy is cratering, is leading to a reduction in gas prices is going to benefit Biden enormously. I do think, though, in terms of like policy choices, messaging choices, the thing you're going to see the most is talking about abortion. It's currently the focus of most midterm television ads. I think the New York Times had a piece the other day that said Democrats have spent $31.9 million in ads on ads about abortion. I think that is beneficial because it's something a lot of people care about. You can message it in a way that is basically where you say Republicans want the government to dictate your own personal medical decisions. Remember how annoying masking was? This is like that, right? And that reaches people who might be personally anti-abortion, but are more libertarian in nature. And I think that's what you saw happen in Kansas. So I think this will be the Democratic Party's focus. We'll see if it works. We'll see if, you know, messages about Joe Biden is too old, 
inflation is too high, gas prices too high. Maybe that will swamp these abortion ads, but time will tell. The reason we ask these questions, and I know you know this in terms of politics and those things, because if, and obviously this seems to be, it was a bigger if a month ago, I think it's a lesser of an if now, but if let's just say the Democrats are somehow able to hold serve in the midterms, obviously that opens potentially the gates for more fiscal stimulus and things that are going to affect obviously the economy and subsequently the stock market. So you understand the questions. I guess my pushback is, what does it look like right now? I mean, again, you watch Fox News and and they'll tell you there's a red wave coming in the fall. And then you go the other way and it says, you know what, it looks like we might be able to get through this somewhat unscathed. What are your thoughts on that? I think you're right. The grounds have been shifting beneath our feet the last few weeks. Biden's approval is terrible. His approval rating has been low for a very long time. No one can spin that. And I think, but if that ticks up a few points, I think that can help a lot. Just sort of like the mood music. Same with the right track, wrong track. Those numbers have been terrible for a very long time. If that ticks up a little bit, I think that can help all Democrats running in the country. The thing that's really interesting is Republicans have nominated some terrible Senate candidates. Like Dr. Oz is a weirdo. Yesterday, he got asked how many houses he owns. He said two. The answer is 10. Oh, two, 10. <laughs> the two, 10 split. That's not a very good answer. John McCain actually faced a similar question in the 2008 campaign. And we ran ads against it for months just because you're like, he's out of touch. There was a video of him going grocery shopping. I don't even know what crudité is. I mean, that was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. Guy, this wasn't a video that some oppo research person put out. This is a video his campaign filmed and released, right? And like John Fetterman is running a great campaign. We got exciting candidates in Wisconsin. Mark Kelly is a strong candidate in Arizona. So like, Look at Georgia, though. I mean, I don't know what goes on in Georgia. I really have no idea. I mean, MTG, I watch those. My wife thinks I'm obsessed with her. I think I might be. For the life of me, I can't understand how she was elected. I mean, forget it. She shouldn't be a dog catcher in the state of Georgia, let alone a representative. And it's to me, it's frightening. But Herschel Walker, who was a great football, one of the greatest college football players of all time, just again, just watching things. I mean, he is not equipped to be in the Senate or the Congress, and just my opinion. But yet, there's a good chance that he gets through. Yeah, it's tough. Look, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, there's one answer that explains her political existence, and it's gerrymandering. When you have a bright red district or a bright blue district, you can get some wacky people in there, and she's kind of like the MAGA flavor of the month, and it is what it is. And like, I think everyone thinks she's a joke, but she's a pain in the ass, and it's someone we have to deal with and can be actually damaging. Herschel Walker's trying to run statewide, And it's an interesting year in Georgia because you have a real deal race at the top. You have Stacey Abrams versus Brian Kemp, who are both incredibly strong candidates, and that's going to be a really tough race. Then you have Senator Raphael Warnock versus Herschel Walker. And Warnock has proven to be a strong candidate. He's got a bit of a record now in the Senate because he's been there for a couple of years. He's going to run on his bio and the things he's going to do for the fight for the state. But his message, the message that the Warnock people are going to go with basically is exactly what you said, that Herschel Walker is not up to the job. And there have been brutal ads that talk about previous spousal abuse, including pointing a gun at his ex-wife. I mean, that is frightening. The guy lied about being an FBI agent, which is really weird. Although maybe, you know, I joked about the city, like he kind of might have dodged a bullet there because the FBI is not very popular in the Republican Party right now. There's the crazy thing he said about climate change. He compared himself to Jesus because he had disassociative disorder. And but Jesus did, too, because he's like the Holy Spirit. I was like, it's the craziest stuff you've ever heard. Okay, so I agree with all of that. 
when they pulled that video a month and a half before the 2016 presidential election of Donald Trump talking, whatever that entertainment tonight, I forget his name, about all the things we've heard a thousand times. That should have been it. That should have been game over. I actually think that helped him win the election. I know that's perverse, but I mean, these things might work to Herschel Walker's favor in the world we currently live in. They might. I think that Donald Trump, as much as I dislike him, as much as Dan disliked him, is an incredibly talented politician. He can be funny. He can be charming. He can hold a crowd. He can have a rapt audience. He doesn't care about the kind of sacred cows in Washington. He could run as an outsider. Like those are powerful, powerful things. And he would, he was tireless on the stump. You know, he's given hour and a half long speeches like four times a day. Herschel Walker has not shown that level of acumen yet. He might, he could still win. It would be very bad, but yeah. Well, it's funny. We spent some time talking about some kind of whack job candidates running against some people like Warnock. The guy has already proved himself in a very short time in the Senate and he's a guy of great character. And he's the sort of candidate, I think, no matter whether you're a red, blue or purple state, which is really what I think a lot of people think Georgia has turned into. But then when you think that that same state has people like Marjorie Taylor Greene representing them and possibly a Herschel Walker. It's just insane. And then take it all the way back. You just mentioned Mark Kelly. Here's a great candidate. He's a former astronaut and he's in the Senate. Guy is running against him, Blake Masters. And you and I, Tommy, were talking about this last week. Go read this article, The Violent Fantasies. There was an op-ed, actually, in the New York Times. The Violent Fantasies of Blake Masters. This is a guy who worked for Peter Thiel for a long time, funded by Peter Thiel. He's smart. This guy's smart, and I almost think that I'd much rather have guys like Herschel Walker scratch that itch for some of these far-right sort of people than a Blake Masters because Blake Masters seems dangerous to me. So talk to me a little bit about that because you do have this barbell situation in the Republican challengers here. Yeah, I mean, Blake Masters is a real weirdo, like Peter Thiel, acolyte, far-right, scary dude. He is smart. He's trying to tack back to the center now, as every candidate does always in the general election. I think it'll be a big turnout election. The thing I think Democrats screwed up in 2016 is they were like, look at this quote or video from Donald Trump. Look how bad he is. Look how offensive he is and kind of left it there. I think the thing we have to do is be like, look at Dr. Oz. Look at what a weirdo he is. And you know what that means? That he doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about inflation. He doesn't care about prescription drug costs. Making the turn that explains why he's not a good representative for you. That's the kind of thing we need to do in Arizona. Because I don't think anyone knows who Peter Thiel is. No one cares except for nerds like us. But they need to make the case that this guy is not going to actually fight for them, but Mark Kelly will. And like, look, it's going to be a tough race. It really is. What did you call yourself? A super listener or the Uber listener of On the Tape? Power listener. Power. I like that power listener. I listen enough to know that you guys dump all the different shows on the same feed, but they all come to me. So that's helpful. I don't have to subscribe to Market Call and on the tape. I get them all. So you don't have to go to your favorite podcast store like Dan tells me all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know what we think of what you do in your arena. You're second to none. How do you, and this is a self-serving question if there ever was one, but you know, in terms of markets and stuff, are we speaking the language? Do we make it accessible? Yes. The reason I like the show, I started listening. I was like, okay, I'm going to do some of the things that these guys recommend. So then you have a little bit of skin in the game. There's a casino element, right? There's a sports gambling element. You're watching the markets and you kind of are invested literally. But I also was watching because I thought it could have a huge impact on sort of general sentiment about how people feel about the economy and what that meant for Biden. And I was pretty worried about it in June. So I was sort of listening to you guys 
contextualize it. I think you do a great job. I had to yell at uh, Dan the other day because someone was talking about like high volume Delta. And I was like, hey, man, I didn't go to business school. I don't know what the hell these super genius people you're talking to are talking about. So I was like, dumb it down for the dummies. But also, guy, I want you to get on TikTok and reach that generation. So I just think you need to work in a couple of things. Like, I want to hear you say, EY from SoFi, you know I don't simp for Elon Musk. You know what I mean? Like, talk to the kids. <laughs> Slow that down. Can I, I'm going to try that, okay? You ready? I'm going to... Simp. I used it in a sentence. Simp. EY from SoFi, you know I don't simp for the Musk. There you go. That's a good one. Oh, man. This is a 41-year-old telling a slightly older gentleman how to talk to the kids. So take this advice with a grain of salt. You know, maybe work in like a no cap if you want to signal that whatever you just said was honest. I'm just trying to give you the lingo that that I know Amanda wants you to use. What does that mean? Help me with that. No cap. What does that help me with that? It means like kind of what you said previously was, was honest, that you meant it sincerely. Yeah. You know, Tommy, I love you, man. No cap. Dan, if he really says this, that's going to be bad. <laughs> oh, he will. Oh, I will say it. You know, we sit in the green room right before we're going on Fast Money, and we'll be having some just cockamamie conversation. And Guy Adami will be like, oh, I'm going to work that in. He'll work that word into the show, like during the thing. So here's one thing, Tommy, that I don't think Guy really appreciates. Our mutual friend, Steve Hunsberger, who I think is a great political mind, also a market mind who introduced us. He knows I've been a big fan. But Guy, you have no idea, Tommy John Lovett, John Favreau, Dan Pfeiffer, Ben Rhodes, these guys that he pods with, okay, they are literally rock stars. I saw them to a sold-out crowd at the Beacon Theater. Now, back in the 70s, you were probably seeing the Almonds in the Beacon. You were probably doing your thing or whatever. These guys go out there. They get huge applause for what they do in front of big crowds. Now, where were you guys, Tommy? In Nashville, you guys were at the Grand Old Opry with former Vice President Al Gore, this past weekend. I mean, talk to us about that vibe. It confuses me. (laughs) I remember we started the pod 2017 because we all felt guilty about not being a part of the last election. We lost all our friends. We're like, what do I do now? How do I fix this? And the answer is you don't. There's no easy fix, right? Democracy and citizenship is a everyday kind of baby steps process. And we wanted to try to address what we thought was bad reporting and be a little more entertaining and substantive and then help people figure out what they can do in their real life. At some point along the way, someone said to us, why don't you guys do live shows? And we're like, who the hell is ever going to come to that crap? And somehow, for some reason, they do. And so I'm very grateful. I'll tell you, though, the Nashville show is one of my favorite. And Al Gore was like fun and funny and goofing around and making jokes about himself. And we made like seven 2000 election jokes at the end we played a game with him at the end love it told him mr vice president you actually got more votes but you lost and he laughed at that <laughs> i heard it he was a great sport man and i felt bad last week on our pod we made a joke about al gore but he really stood in there and took those body blows and he was a great voice and i think your conversation on climate change and how he's been involved in that fight for decades now was really impressive and i think your coverage of the ira and what it means and the significance of it and your old boss going on the Twitter yesterday, calling it a BFD. I mean, that was kind of cool too, huh? So guys should not use BFD on the pod? That's fine. It's just sort of like an inside joke to a bunch of inside joke recipients. I do think the IRA is a big thing. I mean, just for listeners, it's like $370 billion in clean energy. It increases healthcare spending by almost $100 billion. So a bunch of people who got more subsidies from the Affordable Care Act 
don't see their premiums go way up. I don't know what you guys think about this corporate minimum tax, but 15% doesn't seem high to me, nor does a 1% excise tax on, on buybacks. Just dividend it out or invest in human beings. How about that? And then the fact that our own government didn't let Medicare directly negotiate prescription drug prices with pharmaceutical companies is one of the dumbest things in the history of this government. And I think fixing that problem is going to save nearly $300 billion over 10 years. And so Republicans are focused on this IRS piece. They're claiming that 87,000 new IRS agents are going to be kicking down your door. That's not true. The IRS thinks they can hire 87,000 employees by 2031. Most of them will be replacements for workers who retire. Half of that money goes to enforcement. The rest is going to be like IT support and people who take your phone call when you try to figure out what's going on. So I think you guys underestimated in the past the amount of revenue that could come in from this. Again, I'm literally just regurgitating what Larry Summers thinks, but he's been right on a lot of stuff. And he thinks that this will bring in a ton of cash. So I don't know, maybe it'll reduce the deficit. That seems good. Well, Laura Ingram, if you're listening, you heard it here from Tommy Vitor. And watch what I do here. Tommy Vitor, the quintessential, the pride of Kenyan college. No cap. I'll simp for you any day. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Dan. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know, man. Well, listen, we appreciate you jumping on and, and making us smarter about all of this stuff. And we appreciate your support. And we love what you guys do. So we hope you'll come back soon, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I won't be able to listen to this one because I can't hear myself talk, but uh, you know, excited for the next episode. <laughs> Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.